Good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you this morning. Um, if you're a guest, welcome to First Baptist Church of Thibodeau. I'm Kevin Selstein. I get the privilege of uh, pastoring this church and um, being with God's people here. Um, so uh, my wife always tells me this, that um, I'm not an emotional person. I really am not. Uh, the only time that my wife sees me crying, uh, it's not even when my, my babies were born. Uh, I didn't cry when I got married. Um, but I often cry when I'm broken by the presence of God. And, um, you know, I'm up here just, just weeping. And I'm like, man, Kevin, you're making a mess of yourself. Like, get it together. <laughs> get it together. Um, I'm trying to get it together. I just can't get it together. Um, but thankful for the power of God. And a, a lot of it has to do with this passage of Scripture. Just studying this week of God who is a consuming fire. You know, this is, this is a terminology we don't use in our culture anymore. Uh, and studying who God is. He's a consuming fire. And by that, there is a lot of conviction in my own heart. Uh, I see a reflection of who I am without Jesus, and it's not good. It is not good. Um, so this week has been me facing my own sins, facing my own problems. Um, but there's also a reflection of Jesus. There's a reflection of who he is. I'm thankful for the worship team to sing such powerful songs. We're not worthy, but he is worthy. Um, so thank God for his power and presence. Um, I am humble by God's presence this morning. So I pray that you are as well. So... With that said, turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews 12, and we will be looking at verses 25 through 29. And when you've arrived at a text, say word, word. Please stand. We stand out of reverence to God's holy and righteous word. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refuse him, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. That time his voice shook the earth, and now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, 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 let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray together. Father, oh, thank you that you're a God who does not change. You're the same God in the Old Testament as you're the God in the New Testament. You are consuming fire. You are holy and righteous. And God, I, I feel so horrible being a part of a culture that is taken away from the holiness of God that we are all 
drifting from who you really are. So God, I, I pray this morning that you reveal yourself to us, O oh Lord. Reveal your holiness, your righteousness, and call us, God, to make much of that. Your attributes are beautiful. They're wonderful. They're great. So teach us what we do not know. Make us what we are not, and give us what we do not have. And God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. The title of, for today's sermon is, Our God is a Consuming Fire. Our God is a Consuming Fire. In the First Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon entitled, Sinners in the Hands of a Angry God. The passage is an exposition of Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. And in that he says, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand. Their doom comes swiftly. So that was a passage of scripture that Jonathan Edwards preached expositionally. And he looked at, he had his manuscript and monotone preached the sermon with his manuscript to his face like this the entire time and preaching for people to come to know Christ and to repent. One of the illustrations that he used in his sermon was that of a spider on a spider's web, and he imagined that there was a pit or there was fire under the spider, and the spider at any moment would slip and fall into the fire. When Jonathan Edwards was done preaching, he placed his manuscript on the pulpit, and he saw people weeping and crying out to God. This is how the first great awakening happened in America. It's through a man under the conviction of God preaching about the holiness of God. But Jonathan's warning, Jonathan Edwards' warning against hell is no longer what we find in a lot of pulpits in America. It's been replaced by positive thinking, influencing your friends. It's the message of Joel Olstein, right? One of the largest churches we have in America, and people are fluctuating to this particular church. A plethora of people, plethora of numbers are going to the church, and they love that kind of message. But not just Joel Osteen's church. Many churches are wanting to do exactly the same thing. If we preach against sin, if we preach against, if we preach the wrath of God, the holiness of God, people won't come, Kevin. We need people to come. Come to what? A building? Friends, I am more concerned about people coming to know Jesus than coming to a building. And this is exactly what we have before us. We have a culture that is all about teaching positive messages and removing the holiness of God from the pulpit. Richard Nabor, this is what he mentioned. He famously described Protestant liberalism's gospel And he says, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministration of Christ without a cross. This is a message that we have today. We should turn from such horrible message. David Wells, this is what he mentioned as he observed 
our culture. He says, in all Western cultures, the love of God is welcome and the holiness of God is given inhospitable treatment. He is absolutely right. So in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 28, the author reminds us, he reminds his audience here in this passage of Scripture that God of the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament. God does not change. The God of Mount Sinai is the God of Mount Zion. We come to a holy God. As a matter of fact, he helps us here by saying to us that God is a consuming fire. And the author is referring to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 23 through 24. Notice very carefully what it mentions. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make carved image and form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Nahum, chapter 1, verse 2, it mentions the Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. This very passage of Scripture is what Oprah turned to and says, well, God is jealous of me. I don't understand, like, why is God jealous of me? So therefore, I cannot serve a God who's jealous of me. I'm so great that God is jealous of me. No, he's jealous for you, not of you. He wants your affection. He's not jealous because of everything you have in your life that he wishes he could have. No, he wants you. Oprah missed this. And here we have a great passage of Scripture that is calling us to see God for who he really is. So the great mountains that he gave us in the previous passage of Scripture, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, are meant to help us travel They're meant to help us in this Christian race and marathon that whenever we wake up in the morning, we see those two mountains. And those two mountains are constantly calling us to worship God. In St. Lucia, we have two mountains that is called Gopiton and Pitipiton. If you're French, you know what it means. Big mountain and small mountain. Now, you could stand on the southern part of the island or you can stand on the northern part of the island. You will always see those mountains once you walk out. They're beautiful. They're they're the centerpiece of the island. Gopiton and Piripiton. So as you're traveling, you see the mountains. You constantly see the two mountains. And here in this Christian race, he's saying to us, we too have two beautiful mountains. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Here's the beautiful thing about Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, although it looks so tough, we see the power of God. We see the wrath of God. We see that we cannot even approach the mountain. But it says to us that the law of God is good. And the law of God reveals to us our sin. And it also tells us that we need someone to climb up the mountain for us. And someone has done this. And it's Jesus. 
So Mount Zion tells us Jesus has climbed up the mountain. So now we can come and freely worship God. So the question that we ask is, how can we march? How can we run this race? How can we go to Mount Sinai and Mount Zion? If you're asking this question this morning, you're asking a very good question. Because the author of Hebrews is explaining this to us, and he's given us the answer of how we can march. How do we do this? Two ways that we can do this. We must obey the one who speaks. He tells us here in verses 25 through 27, the one who speaks. The one who spoke in the Old Testament is the same one who is speaking today. He's relevant. He's speaking to you today. He wants you to come see the gospel. He wants you to come see him and worship him. God, come in closer, don't miss this. God is still speaking. He's still speaking. I don't care what the secular world is telling you. I don't care what Dr. Phil or Oprah is telling you. God is still speaking and he wants you to listen. And he primarily speaks through his word. <laughs> He wants you to obey. So we see this in verses 25 through 27. And I love this part. We must worship. Second point, we must worship the one who is a consuming fire. We must worship the one who is a consuming fire. We see this in verses 28 through 29. Don't, don't turn away from the one who is a consuming fire. It should not be condemnation because of one who is a consuming fire, but there should be gratitude in our hearts. And this is exactly what the author of Hebrews mentions here. We must be thankful. We must approach God who is a consuming fire with reverence and awe. So with that said, observe with me the first point. We must obey the one who speaks. During Christianity's second century, a notable heretic by the name of Marcion, Marcion came in power in Asia Minor. And what he did specifically is that he looked at the Old Testament, and he looked at the New Testament, and he says, well, you know, I have a problem with the Old Testament. God is different in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. It seems that God is wrathful. There is justice that kills but in the New Testament, it seems to be very loving. So what he did was he created his own translation, his own Bible. And what he did was he removed all of the Old Testament texts. He included only the Gospel of Luke, an edited version of it, and some of Pauline's epistle, Paul's epistles. Now, we, we look at Marcion and we say, man, this is horrible. Why would someone do such a thing? But... It's still going on today. Marcionism is still going on in the church today. There are several people who say to themselves, well, we don't believe in the Old Testament. God spoke in the Old Testament, but, but he's not speaking the same way to us today. But perhaps you're struggling with antinomianism against the law, where you say to yourself, you read Paul's epistle, and Paul says, we are not under the law. And you say, you see, Kevin, Paul says, we're not under the law, so we shouldn't read the Old Testament. When Paul says we're not under the law, 
In the book of Romans, what the, what the Apostle Paul is saying is we're not under the penalty of the law. What do you think Paul had when he was writing Holy Scripture? The law, the Old Testament. So for us in the New Testament, we can be so distorted that we say to ourselves, we are on this side of the cross, so we will neglect the Old Testament. And this has been the author of Hebrews' point throughout Man, let's embrace God in the Old Testament and God in the New Testament because it's the same God. The New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old. So we, we, we look at Marcionism and we say this is a serious problem. But friends, it's still going on today. Maybe this morning you're saying to yourself, why? Well, I, I don't even read the Old Testament. I just read the gospel. And some of you can say, I just read the red letters in the Bible. <laughs> they are all, all about Jesus. Did you not hear Jesus' word in the book of Luke? That the, the law, the prophets, they are all about him. The Psalms is all about him. So friends, as we, as we see this, we must turn away from that. But, but notice here what he is saying here to us. He says, the one who speaks. See for yourself in verse 25. Notice very carefully. Look down. In verse 25, he says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Not he who spoke, he who is speaking. So the God who spoke in the Old Testament is speaking today. He spoke to the small Hebrew church and he's speaking to you today. But here's the command and the warning here. See to it that you do not refuse, reject the voice of God. And this was the problem that we notice in the Old Testament at Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 19 and Exodus chapter 20, God appeared to his people on this great mountain, Mount Sinai. And the people were so fearful that they turned to Moses and they said to Moses, Moses, you speak to God. We will not speak to God because we are fearful. So right then we see that they did not listen to the words of God because of fear. But later on, we notice that they did not listen to the word of God because of disobedience. So we notice in the wilderness that they disobeyed God and God said to them that they will not enter his promised land. Only Joshua and Caleb would enter the promised land. Why? Because of disobedience. Friends, the book of Hebrews is all about God speaking. Do you see it? We're about to end our journey through the book of Hebrews, but it's all about God speaking. And his people listening. Indeed, he tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, that God established everything by speaking, right? By speaking. He spoke to his people and he told them that they are his precious people. He told them that they belong to him by speaking. God is all about speaking to his people. And he's about speaking to you as well. The question is, are you listening? Coming closer and pay close attention to this. Are you listening to God? And primarily, he speaks to us through his word. 
There are so many of us that we are not disciplined to read the Word of God, to even understand His voice, to know what He's saying to us. You want God to speak to you? Feed yourself with the Word of God and watch how He will speak to you. The job of the Holy Spirit is to remind you of what Jesus has already said to you. Remind you of the Word of God. So, so the, the food that we give the Spirit of God in our lives is the Word of God. God is willing to speak to us. The question is, are we listening? So two things here that he shares about the Word of God. First, he tells us that the Word of God is living. He implies that here. Notice again, he says to us, the one who is speaking and not the one who spoke. So God's word is alive. It is living. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It discerns. We see this from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. But as the word of God is living and sharpened in any two-edged sword, we must apply it to our lives. But see very carefully what he mentions here about those who do not listen to the word of God. See for yourself in verse 25, again, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, right? For if they did not escape when they refuse him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Escape what? What exactly is he saying here? Escape. It's the wrath of God. Friends, I need you to get this and understand this very carefully. Because of the holiness of God and because of our sins, we are condemned. But it's because of the grace of Jesus and the love of Jesus and the blood of Jesus that there is a propitiation, which basically means that God's wrath is no longer upon us, but it fell upon the Son Jesus Christ. And here specifically, he says to us that God himself, because of his wrath, he did not place his wrath upon us, but he placed it upon his son. But those who do not believe in Jesus, coming closer, don't miss this. Please get this. Please get this. If you do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, the wrath of God is upon you. Those who are lost in their sins, this is, this is why we don't play with this. This is eternity. There's some who come to church on a consistent basis, who, who play this religious game. They, they might have all the right theology. Even some practice, they might have that good but listen to me very carefully. This is not a game. If, if, if you do not believe upon the Son of God and have faith in the Son of God, the wrath of God is upon you. This is a terrifying thing. A terrifying thing. Almola states this. Our rebellion against God merits His wrath. All of our sins merit his wrath. And the way we escape from this is by trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone, repenting of your sins, which means to say no to sin and to say yes to Jesus. To 
have a relationship with him, to trust in him. But notice what else he mentions about the word of God. Not only is the word of God living, but God's word is final. See for yourself in verse 27. In verse 27, he tells us that God shakes the world again. See for yourself, verse 27. He says, this phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So here specifically, he tells us of this phrase. The phrase once more alludes to one final time. Here, the author of Hebrews is referring to Haggai. In Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, this is what he mentions. He says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet, here's the phrase, yet once more, in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. So all things created will be destroyed. Coming closer, the earth, the universe, animals, people, everything, everything. He will shake the world when he returns. But the only thing that will escape are those who trust in Jesus Christ. This is why he mentioned it is an unshakable kingdom. You know, I remember my grandmother growing up. My mother would send all kinds of great stuff like technology, and she would send cooking supplies, you know, like electric knives. Uh, she would send microwave, and she would send blender, and she would send all that kind of stuff. And as a young boy, you know, I would watch on TV, and I would see how people would use these things, and I'm like, man, I can't wait to use it. But my grandmother created her own shrine in the kitchen where she would place every single one of these things on the shelf. So as people would walk by, they would say, wow, look at all of the things that you have. But they were never used. And it aggravated me, even as a young boy. I'm like, why are you doing this? So one day, there was this earthquake that passed through St. Lucia. And guess what happened? That shrine came falling down. And I'm sitting, I'm watching this thing. I'm like, ah, oh, yes. Every single one of them broke. Every single one of the things that my grandmother wanted to keep, things that are not eternal, things that she believed would, would give her a sense of prosperity or, or fame, every single one of them broke. Now, coming closer, I, I do think for us, we do something very similar to my grandmother. Maybe it's our career. Maybe, maybe it's our bodies. Maybe it's, it's our popularity. Maybe it's even our family. Maybe it's our homes and our cars, things that are not eternal, that we're constantly wanting to hoard, constantly wanting to keep. But every single one of these things will be shaken. Every one of them. So we, we, we're spending hours upon hours upon hours doing these things and pursuing these things, but we are not pursuing the things of God. This is why Jesus mentioned to us in Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. What is eternal? Jesus, his kingdom, his righteousness, that's eternal. 
So here the author is telling us exactly what we must pursue. Something or a kingdom that is unshakable. What are you living for? Who are you living for? This, this is a great conviction for me this week, as I mentioned to you. Because sometimes we, we drift. We drift in our Christianity. We pursue things that we have no clue that our hearts are tied to. And, and sometimes they're good things. Sometimes they're just good things. Providing for your family, that's a good thing. But sometimes we take it overboard, right? So, so we must evaluate our hearts by what is eternal. And this is what God does. Because he's a consuming fire, he consumes all of these things when we come near to God. And he reveals who we really are before him. And when, we, when he reveals that, then we have no choice but to cry out for mercy, right? His word is eternal. His word is final. And the next thing I want us to observe here is to take a look at the second point. We must worship the one who is a consuming fire. I love this. I love this. Notice, notice with me in verses 28 through 29. He transitions as to how do we, how do we travel, how do we march. We, we do this by, by first obeying the word of God. We obey his word. And second, we do this by worshiping the one who is a consuming fire. And in verses 28 through 29, he says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. The kingdom that God has given to believers is a kingdom that will not be shaken. So, so how can we worship this God? This is a good question for us. And the author of Hebrews, he tells us here, one, we do this by being thankful. Being thankful. We, we ought to be thankful people. And thankful people are happy people. The Bible is filled with commands of us being thankful. And there's a reason why. Parents, you, you know this as parents, that you teach your children to be thankful. And the reason why you teach your children to be thankful is because a lot of times they are not thankful, right? No matter what you give them, it's not enough. Like you, you give them something good, and it's like, well, what about this? What about that? So when you teach them to be thankful... You're teaching them to be sensitive, sensitive to the things that you're doing for them, sensitive to what God is doing for them. In the same way, God wants his children to be thankful people, that we are thankful primarily for the attributes of God, that God is holy, God is righteous, God is good, God is loving, God is merciful. We also are thankful for answered prayers in our lives. So, God, I prayed for this, and God, I am seeing this happening. Thank you for it. We are also thankful because of needs in our lives, that God meets the needs in our life. God, thank you for meeting my need, providing me a spouse, providing me a family, pro providing me good health, providing me a job, providing me a church. There are a lot that we can be thankful for. 
So we are consistently thankful. No matter what, we, we are thankful. We are thankful for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Even if when some of them get on our nerves, we, we are thankful for them. Because God is using them to teach me how to be more like Christ. They're holding me accountable. They're praying for me. So what, what else? What else? We, we do it. We worship God. We worship God by offering acceptable service to God. This is exactly what he mentions here. You see it. This is the same phrase used in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourself to God as a holy sacrifice, which is acceptable to him. This is exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing here. He's saying to you, the way that you worship God is by offering yourself to him as a living sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice. Listen, I need you to get this and get this. God is not after your money. God is not after your works. God is not after any of these things. You know what he's after? Your hearts. He's after you. In other words, the acceptable thing to do is to give your heart and life to God and to say to God, here is my life and I'm writing a blank check. And you cash it, God. Whatever you want, whatever you need, whatever you command, I will do. That's acceptable worship. But you know what we do to God? We say to God, hey, God, huh, this is only a part that you can use, just this one part. You can't touch this part. You can't mess with this. This is for me, God. I'm only giving you this portion. But here in the text, he mentions that we give what is acceptable to God, and that is our life. Worship is a lifestyle. So everything that we do and say should make much of God. I've met businessmen. It says they're only Christians when they come to church and when they're around other Christians. But whenever they're doing their business with the lost world, oh, they're taking that off. They're not a Christian when they're in the world because a businessman is not called to be a Christian. What is that? That is not worship acceptable to God. That is saying, I'm only giving you a small portion of my life. And here, we are called to give everything to God. Acceptable service to God. And then third, we do it with reverence and awe. Do you see in your own Bibles what he mentions here? reverence and awe. I love this. He says this in verse 28, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. We, come in close, I need you to get this. I need you to get this. We cannot approach God flippantly. We cannot we cannot approach God half-heartedly. We approach a holy, a righteous God with reverence and awe. So when you, when you gather here together as the church, it cannot be half-heartedly. 
It must be that I'm approaching God. God is with his church with reverence and awe. And this is exactly what the author is saying here. So friends, notice what else he mentions as we close. In verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Come in closer and write this down. The gospel is God saving us from his wrath and in Christ giving us abundant mercy and grace. The, God, the gospel is God saving us from his wrath. So instead of God giving us wrath, God gives us his son's righteousness. Instead of God destroying us, he builds us. He creates something beautiful in us. That's what the gospel is. And that's exactly why he is a consuming fire. So as we close, look at God in the Bible. The same God in the, is, in the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament. He is holy. He is righteous. He is loving. He is kind. He is good, and he is wrathful. He is a consuming fire. And for those of us who are saved and Christians, there is great hope. We approach this mountain, and we say to ourselves, we cannot climb. But we also say, thanks be to God who climbed Mount Sinai for us and have fulfilled the law of God on our behalf. And if you're not saved this morning, you can say the same thing by placing your faith, your hope, your life in Jesus by repenting and trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Join me as we pray together. Father, you are consuming fire. You are holy and righteous. So many times... The pulpit is used as a place of comedy, a place of positive message without the Word of God. The Word is positive. So many pulpits are taking away the Word, taking away sin, the wrath of God, the justice of God. And God, I pray that we as a church will embrace all the attributes of God. He's wrathful, he's just, but yes, he's loving and good. So what the Bible tells us about God, we are fine with, and we exalt him for it. We are thankful. God, speak to our hearts. Teach us and lead us, God. In your mighty and precious name, amen, amen.